You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. of the parents that we asked, they did admit to some form of electronic monitoring of their children. And we think that number is extremely high. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She speaks with David Ruiz from Malwarebytes. They're talking about parents spying on their kids. All right, Joe, before we get to our stories, we have quite a bit of follow-up. Indeed we do. This week. So let's jump in here. You want to take this first one? I'll take the first one. It comes from a listener named Casey who says, I just wanted to say that your story about the coming minority report situation in public schools was interesting in a scary way. He says he also loves the podcast. Keep them coming. Yeah. No, thank you, Casey, for writing in. Uh, We got one from Jonathan. Jonathan says, at the end of the first half of episode 186, you mentioned a programmer job scam where the person just flips jobs every few weeks and never really does anything. Yep. The twist I've seen is where the contractor gets the job, then farms out the actual work (laughs) to a Chinese or Indian outsourcer at a fraction of their salary and claims it as their own. Having two or three of these scams going on together at a day rate of about uh, 500 pounds equals about $2,000 daily. Being a project manager with three projects is hard, but not $2,000 per day hard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly another way to go at it. Gives me an idea, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, Joe sure is on a lot of podcasts lately. You know, I, (laughs) you know, I don't know. Is this, is this really a scam? I mean, you're providing the work, you're doing the work for the agreed upon price, right? If the people are happy with the work, then I suppose there's no real problem with it. Yeah. I don't know that this, I mean, because they're, they're paying you for the work, but, and you're delivering the work. Yeah. What do they care about how it's done? Well, I mean, I suppose it's fraudulent in that if you're representing it as being your own work, then you're not being on the up and up. But eh. ultimately, if they because if they wanted to hire a contractor, they would have hired a contractor. Right. right? But right. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that concerns me about this is if they're doing it with, uh, you know, if they're doing it for a company that is very concerned about intellectual property, I guess, you know, there, yeah. there's your concern is that you're yeah. you're putting the intellectual property at risk. Right. You're offshoring, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, good good point from Jonathan. Yep. Uh, our final bit of uh, follow-up this week, a uh, listener writes in and says, hey, I was listening to a recent episode of Hacking Humans regarding the problem of redirects in web browsing. A site I found helpful is called Redirective Detective. <laughs> it rolls like right that. off the tongue, Redirective it? Detective, yeah. <laughs> uh, given the episode's subject matter, I won't provide a link, but it should be the top hit in any search engine. This site allows you to drop in a suspicious URL. It'll check for redirects. Like any tool, it's not foolproof, but something people can use to check for suspect sites. Love the show. Keep up the great work. That's another good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I love that there are all these little tools that you can drop suspicious URLs in. You should, yeah. You should – good Good to have those bookmarks. So if there is something, you know, you think might be not on the up and up, uh, you can drop it in there and, you know, uh, what do they call it? Uh, pre-detonate it. Pre-detonate right? it, right. <laughs> Virus Total also has a, a, a URL feature that you can use. Yeah. So if you got a suspicious URL, you can just copy and paste it right into that and Virus Total will detonate it for you and – you can see how it goes. But this redirector detector, that kind of does roll off the tongue. 
Yeah. Uh, mm. Once you get used to saying it, it's it's pretty fun to say too, by the way. <laughs> redirect or detector. It's redirective detective. Oh, redirective detective. Yeah. Okay, now that's different. I'm saying things wrong. <laughs> okay. Redirective let's go, detective. Let's move on to some stories, All right, Joe. Yeah, let's, <laughs> why don't you why don't you kick things off for let's, us? Let's redirect this conversation. There you go. <laughs> so my story comes from Proofpoint, Dave. Mm. Uh, and this is this came out earlier this month, and they are rounding up last year's strangest social engineering tactics. Hmm. And they have a top five list. Okay. I love lists. Yeah. Right? Uh, number five is soccer scouting. Hmm. Last year, researchers saw multiple social engineering ca- campaigns using soccer lures to deliver malware to clubs in France, Italy, and UK. Hmm. And the, you know, I guess soccer is really big over there. You know, they call it football, Joe. They do. Yeah. They, they call it football. That's right. <laughs> so uh, the way the threat actor was working in this case was he was posing as a sports agent representing young players from uh, Africa and South America. Mm. And he was sending their uh, sending people what looked like videos. Mm. Uh, but they were malicious, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? Number four, spoofing scholars. Spoofing scholars. Okay. Right? There's an Iranian-aligned actor targeting European academics and foreign policy or in policy experts, right? Yeah. Now, I'll tell you something, Dave. Academics get targeted a lot because uh-huh. they're, they have research that they have not been releasing, uh-huh. that has not been released yet, that might be pre-released. And if you can get, a, get that research beforehand, you might have some kind of competitive edge. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. Uh, so there's this threat group, which is called TA4... 53. Do you know which kitten thing that is? I don't know which kitten that is. No, it's <laughs> pouncing kitten or, right. yeah. Mm, it's all, all cats for Iran. Yep. Um, what are the American ones? Are they eagles? We, well, they they don't name them, but if they did, they would definitely be eagles. Right. Yeah. yeah. They were posing as senior research fellows at universities using lookalike email addresses to spoof real academics. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just trying to get into people's accounts using those things. So pretending to be something you aren't. Number three is fake but functional. They have some high-profile social engineering campaigns involving finely crafted but non-functioning lures. Uh, the most famous one is, we talked about this one on the show. It was Bravo Movies. Hmm. That was just a, uh, a, it was a fake streaming site, completely fake streaming site with all kinds of content listed on it, but all it did was install malicious software on your, oh, so- on your computer. Uh, but these attackers are moving beyond that, and they're actually writing stuff that actually works. Hmm. Uh, they send you a Microsoft Excel file containing a uh, a freight calculator, but, of course, you got to enable macros, Dave. Oh, I see. Once you do that, Bob's your uncle. Right, right. So the calculator works, but you get a right. bunch of extra stuff that yes, you don't absolutely. want. Yes, yeah. you absolutely. Your, your, your computer becomes pwned, as the kids say. Right. Good news, bad news. And this is kind of, this is one of those things that really uh, is just an unconscionable thing that these malicious actors do. This one is, uh, they're, they're targeting people within the same company, and they're sending some of them <laughs> upcoming termination letters that say you've been terminated, and here's here's how you get all your all your stuff in 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 order. Hmm. And they're sending other people, hey, you're getting a bonus. Hmm. And they're sending the, these competing emails into the same into the same company. Can you imagine? You know, you and I are sitting here working one day, right? And you get an email that says you're fired, and I get an, hey, Dave, look, I'm getting a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
right? <laughs> Peter sent me a big bonus check. <laughs> yeah. Hey, they're firing me. You know, <laughs> right. Course, you and I would be dubious of that, right? Yeah, well, um, but, uh, but hopefully because so, we're steeped in this. <laughs> but imagine, imagine uh, the regular employee who doesn't live and breathe this stuff, right? Hmm. What, what, what does he feel or she feel? The termination one is terrible, right? And there's no, there's no good outcome here. Well, and I, I wonder, does the, does it amp up the emotional response because the people who are feeling bad feel even worse because the people across the cubicle from them are, you know, dancing a jig because they got a bonus, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but mm. I'll tell you that the the termination one, I can absolutely see that being one that might work on me. You're being fired. Here's your explanation in this letter. What? I'm being fired? How dare they? Let me click on it. Oh, yeah. now they. <laughs> I see. Right. Right. And here's here's my favorite one, Dave. This one comes from Canada, north of the border, if you will, the Great White North. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a phishing email that combines the lures of an inheritance with a lottery winning. Hmm. Now, we've always said, if you didn't enter a lottery, then you didn't win the lottery. Right. right? You didn't buy a ticket. You didn't win a lottery. Yeah. But there's the the lure of a an inheritance is different, right? Because who knows? Maybe you do have some uh, rich uncle that you never heard of, right? Yeah. And that's it, much more feasible. It can happen. Right. But they're saying, hey, you've gotten both of these, and they're sitting in one bank account, and the Bank of Canada is going after it right now. So if you buy this ATM card, that'll show that you're interested in the funds and they'll stop seizing it. Oh, I so see. So send us the $100 ATM card and we'll we'll secure your funds. Uh-huh. Now, if you buy this $100 ATM card, that's just the beginning of the harassment, right? They mm-hmm. go, oh, we got one on the line and they will continue to try to, uh, to drain your account of all the money that you have. Hmm. Wow. You know, this is a bit of an aside here, but it reminds me of one time um, my wife got a nasty gram in the mail about a speeding ticket she got in a town in, like, South Carolina that she had never been to. Right. Uh, and they said, you know, well, look, you can handle this. The You can do this the easy way or the hard way. Right. Uh, you can just, you know, pay for this. Um, it's just like, okay, you know, other, because if you don't pay for it, you got to go down there and appear in court, which, right. of course, is never going to happen. Yes. So uh, she's, all right, let me just pay for this and get on with my life. And uh, no, they do not take credit cards. They do not take, you know, so someone had, what you had to do was call the office across the street that someone had set up that would take your credit card and then they would hand deliver a check to the courthouse uh, to pay off your fine huh. for a small, small fee. So I'm imagining, you know, Boss Hog. Right. <laughs> right. Old who is, J.D. Hogg. <laughs> who's set up, you know, with his cousin. Uh, I'm going to get damn Bittner, boys. <laughs> right. He's set up this scam uh, just to, to make money right. and, uh, you know, this cash scam. So, right. yeah. Mm. Now, was the ticket legit? No, the ticket wasn't legit. Okay. My, my wife had never been there. And of course, you know, you have righteous indignation. You're like, I'm not going to, but, but then, you know, reality sets in. You're like, okay, well, I'm not going to go spend, I'm not going to travel to South Carolina from Maryland. Right. You know, stand and yeah. So you just, you just, you pays your money. You, you write it off as a cost of doing business on this planet on which we live and, and you get on with your life. Right. Yeah. Very frustrating though. All right. Well, good stories. Uh, we will uh, share that article in the show notes, of course. Yep. Um, my story this week uh, comes from one of our listeners uh, who wrote in. Uh, he said, you can call me Ricky. 
He said, I want to share this story with you as a win, sort of, preventing a scam, but also to raise the question of best practices at retail chains. Hmm. Uh, He says, I work for a large tech retail chain in a customer-facing role within the store, but I've also done work with finding vulnerabilities and such, hence my awareness of these scams. Anyway, a customer came into the store asking to purchase a 200-pound Steam gift card. So uh, sounds like uh, Ricky is European. Okay. I was going to say a 200-pound what? <laughs> no. What, what the tech is, store weighs 200 pounds? That was not the weight of it. That it was, was the cost. British pounds. Right. Yes. 200 British pounds for Steam gift cards. Right. Which is, makes sense. Yes. And he says, now I have some procedures. This is the quick version of how it went. Me. Why don't we do this together, Joe? So okay. I will be, I will play the part of Ricky and you can be the customer. All right. Okay. So I will say, uh, Ricky said, uh, what are you using this for? And the customer says, I'm giving it to my nephew. Oh, so it's a gift for his birthday. No, he's abroad at the moment and needs it to get cash because his flight has been canceled. Can we have a chat over here for a second? I just want to buy the gift card. I want to make sure you're buying the right gift card, sir. Yeah, he said to get the steam one. You know, that can't be used to get cash out of a cash machine. And Ricky says the customer's a little frustrated now, but he's been doing customer support for years, so he kept him calm enough. Well, that's what he said, so... Have you spoken to him by phone or just messages? Messages. Have you sent him gift cards before? Yeah, a few. Says he's clearly aggravated, but Ricky keeps his interest. How much money does a flight cost? Uh... How much money have you already sent? 2,800 pounds. Can you just sell me the damn gift card? If you want them, absolutely, sir, but I'm worried about this. Can you phone him and actually speak to him, please? Just sell the gift card. My nephew wouldn't steal from me. I know he wouldn't, sir. I'm worried that it isn't your nephew. That's exactly my point. And he says the customer buys the gift card anyway. Okay. Now, he goes on and he says a few minutes later, the customer came back. I think he was annoyed at himself as he didn't want to believe that he'd lost his money. He asked to talk to me and I explained how the scams work. He clearly began to realize. I refunded his purchase that he just made. Good. Says, this isn't the perfect template for a conversation, but ultimately, I asked questions which raised some red flags to me as being unusual. No, this is the perfect template, Ricky. You did a great job here, and and it was successful. I don't want to say that I'm so amazing, blah, 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 but I I do think— I think you're amazing. But I do think that there should be some kind of policy for asking some things like this. I agree, and a lot of stores do that. Uh, more and we, more, yeah. yeah. We've talked about CVS. Uh, yeah. When they when when you buy a gift card, they say, "Who are you buying this for? What are you giving it to them for? Why do they need it?" They start, you know, giving you the third degree. They start doing what Ricky's doing here. Yeah. Um, the signage up. Yeah. Uh, where, I, where the gift cards are that are warnings. Right. I went to Lowe's and there was there were signs up uh, at the cash register saying "gift card scams." Here's how they work. Mm-hmm. This is great. Ricky, yeah. uh, you you know, you saw something going on. You said something to it. The guy disregarded it, but. What you did was plant a seed. As he walked out of the store, that seed started growing. And he started going, this guy might be right. I mm-hmm. might be getting scammed. And he, mm-hmm. and, he, and it worked, Ricky. This, this is great. Good job. Yeah, the other thing I'll add is that I think what was really uh, well executed by Ricky was the, the way that he did it, that right. he was not confrontational. He wasn't accusatory. He yep. just sort of, as you said, he planted that seed. Yep. Let the gentleman buy the card, sent him on his way, and and later found out that that succeed that seed uh, took root. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, Ricky, thank you for sending that in. Again, that is uh, my story for this week. I I think it's a good one. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Michael, and he writes, This email really looked good. The embedded links do not link to Microsoft. They originate from France. Hmm. The YouTube link doesn't even go to YouTube. And actually, I looked at the other links, including like the privacy policy and the they all go to the same URL. Oh. Um, but uh, the verbiage, he says, the verbiage, you cannot use your own email for this product, raise the hair on the back of my neck. Hmm. So there's a number of red flags in this email, but it is a well-crafted email, visually stimulating, visually looks good. Mm-hmm. Not stimulating, but it looks good. So it says Office 365 Business Premium Account. Get exclusive features and storage, Office 365 app, Microsoft corporate partner, license for schools, home and commercial use compatible with all devices. Uh, And it lists a whole bunch of other features of this. Right. Uh, And then it says important information. This product is an account, not a license key. This is a new account. The account is brand new and exclusive to you. You will receive a unique email and password login details, which you can use to log into portal.office.com and enjoy Office 365. The first time you log in, you will be prompted to set a new password from the default generated one. After set a new password, please save it and remember it. Mm -hmm. This cannot be used to renew an existing subscription. You cannot use your own email for this product. You can only change the password of this account, not the email address and name of this account. Video tutorial of how to download and activate Office 365 by signing in with a Microsoft account on Mac or PC. And then there's a link to... YouTube.be. <laughs> right, which is YouTube's link shortening service. Right, right. But that link does not go to YouTube. Uh, it goes to the same website as everything else goes to. Yeah, there's there's a big red button that says get Office 365 business premium account. So right. what so so what when you read through this, Joe, what are right. the things that uh caught your eye? Well, it one of the things that catches my eye is it's kind of what Michael says. It says you can't change the password uh, or you can't change the name or the email for this product. Yeah. Which is weird. I that mean, is weird. It, it, it's not how these things work. Another thing that catches my eye is it still says Office 365. Mm-hmm. The product used to be called Office 365, but they since changed it to Microsoft 365. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, but if you don't know that, you're not going to, and, and that's a branding decision that not everybody pays attention to. Yeah. And and even even I and not 100% certain that that's correct all the time, you know? I mean, sure. I don't I I'm not such a Microsoft fanboy that I'm like, "Oh, what are they calling it now?" You know? I can never remember if it's if it's Office 360 or Office 365. I'm like, right. is it, you know, 360 degrees of a circle or, or is it 365, 365 days, years, of a year? days a year? I can't, yeah. can't. I just can't get yeah, it straight. <laughs> bad decision. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, are they are they going to come out with Windows 365? They're just going to go from Windows 11 to th- Windows 365? Who knows? Look at that. Look how far <laughs> look how far ahead we've gone. Right, exactly. These marketing guys wreck everything. You know, it it, <laughs> it, it strikes me too that this is kind of along the lines of, you know, there are these scammy, spammy emails that kind of wink and nod at you that they're offering you pirated software. Yeah. You know, get Adobe Photoshop for $29.99. Not a, not a subscription, yours forever. You know, that sort right. of thing. And this is along those lines. So I would say, in addition to the things you pointed out, there's also that, you know, if it's too good to be true. Yeah, you're probably buying hacked software. And if you're buying hacked software, there is a probably 90% chance that there's something malicious in it. Yeah, yeah, you know? these days for sure. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Michael for sending that in. We do appreciate it. We would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for our catch of the day or perhaps a story, you can send it to us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, it's always great when Carol Terrio joins the show, and is. she is back this week. She is speaking with David Ruiz from Malwarebytes, and they are talking about parents spying on their kids. Here's Carol Terrio. Data privacy, we all know it's a big deal, but we rarely hear about one aspect of this privacy issue. You know, the one where parents actually digitally track their kids' activities online. Here's where I bring in David Rees from Malwarebytes. He's an online privacy advocate. Thanks for coming on the show, David. It's uh, great to be here. So you guys recently dug into this area asking, like, how parents track their kids, why they track their kids, or how. And I'd love just to hear about what you guys found out. So we found just right the top line, the headline here is that 84% of our respondents, so 84% of the parents that we asked, they did admit to some form of electronic monitoring of their children. And we think that number is extremely high, right? Because it is. And it's something that you also got to at the very beginning there, right? It's, which is that we talk a lot about data privacy as a concept. We talk a lot about data privacy as sort of black and white, as sort of this absolute kind of concept where if you are invading someone's privacy, if you're monitoring someone's activity without their knowledge, that's a wholesale bad. How could you do that? You know, reprehensible behavior. But we are ignoring that there are parents every single day who are faced with this question of, you know, should I monitor what my kid is doing? And they don't really see it from what we learned. They don't see it as this conceptual thing. They don't see it as this big, you know, uh, contrast between two opposing sides. They see it, as we learned, as, can I keep my kids safe? And and that's yeah. why we see something like 84%, you know, of parents saying that they do it. 70% said they used at least one form of monitoring uh, that they had told their kid about, right? So their kid is informed. Oh, so, like they, so they're saying, like, I'm watching your activity on Facebook, for example, or something like that. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. They say, hey, we know you're going to start using this platform. We're going to look at it. Those are the right. terms of the deal, right? Uh, on the flip side, we had 36% of folks saying that they used at least one form of monitoring without telling their kids. Whoa. So, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So do you think, okay, and we're just spitballing here, but it's a bit like kind of going into your kid's bedroom, isn't it? Without their permission. It's a little bit like that. And right, there are some things that are different, right? There are some things that are not entirely the same because the types of monitoring we do are different. So something like tracking GPS locations, which was the most popular thing that parents did, uh, you know, when looking at their kids, when monitoring their kids, that was the most popular thing. We don't have a corollary to that, like in the in the non-digital world, right? You can't go into your bedroom and your kid's bedroom and uh, like assume that your child said, today I went here, then I went there. <laughs> I wonder if parents actually buy phones for their kids before kids actually beg for them in order to have that GPS location tracking on them. Basically, every modern phone that you can get, you know, at your store, GPS tracking is extraordinarily easy. So most of the apps you have on your phone are trying to do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you don't even have to try that hard. They can do it. Um, 
And so that might speak to also why it's the most popular, right? It's the easiest one to do. Now, what else do they track? Do they track things like gaming? Yeah, yeah. So parents are tracking gaming. Parents uh-huh. are tracking uh, social media use, obviously. Parents, right. the least popular thing they're doing is tracking text messages, so messaging apps. There is a couple of reasons that could be. One of them that we think is also that it is the hardest thing to do, you know, aside from saying, give me your phone, I'm looking at your text messages. GPS makes perfect sense to me that that's the number one thing parents would want to do. That doesn't surprise me. And it kind of makes sense. You want to know where your kids are at. And in fact, you're liable, right? For <laughs> getting into <laughs> right, trouble. So you- right. <laughs> parents, are, parents are monitoring their kids' uh, web browsing, right? Which I think also intuitively for a lot of parents makes sense. It's like, as soon as your kid is able to use a web browser, as soon as they're able to type in a URL, I can see a lot of parents thinking, well, then you're old enough to, you know, have that URL monitored by me. You know, I need to know what you're doing. I need to know that you're not going to, you know, websites that are one, inappropriate at a certain age level, but two, also just unsafe. I mean, like, the internet is not a safe place. <laughs> it's not a safe place for adults. I can understand parents saying, wow, you know, it took me 30 years to understand what was a sketchy website. I, a child doesn't have that understanding. Yeah. And especially during the pandemic, I imagine that computer usage went through the roof. You know, both mm-hmm. parents are working, kids are at home, yeah. homeschooling wasn't always all that. There'd be behaviors that um, when things start getting back to normal that you might want to curb, and that might be easier said than done. The one thing that really surprised me, and maybe it's just I don't understand how children operate uh, in terms of like how much technology they actually interact with. Uh, parents saying that they, they monitor their children's email. Uh, more than 30% of parents said that. Uh, I, look, I realized I was born in a different year. I didn't have an email address, I think, till I went to college. And that was a surprise to me. It's just that email was being tracked. I was like, who, what do they have email for? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know a lot of kids that have emails. Actually, no, they have emails to authenticate accounts. Oh, that, okay. Okay. Right? So it might be where it is so you can that see what accounts sense. they're signing up to maybe. Yeah. What about ages? What about ages? Does this start quite young? Did people kind of say, I started tracking our kids at this age? Just really broadly here, we saw that some parents are starting to monitor all types of activities as honestly, as early as three to five. And so, yeah, but (laughs) it's like, aren't they playing with blocks at that point? Is it like a fake phone? Like, I don't understand how you track your three year old location and expect to get anything that you don't already have maybe right a three-year-old is going to preschool and they and you're worried about like okay is the preschool actually doing what they say they're doing they take them for their walk i i don't know it's hard for me to even fathom right because they live with you (laughs) and they're three so yeah normally they're walking by three yeah yeah they're not driving but they're certainly walking pretty fast right fascinating Basically, as soon as a child is able to interact with a new type of activity, a new platform, that is when parents start monitoring their kids. So uh, web browsing became really popular between the ages of like 9 and 11, which is, yeah, mm-hmm. kind of when you can start entering again, like, like I said, your own URLs. 
Social media was quite popular at 12 to 14. Actually, it was the most popular activity to be tracked between the ages of 12 and 14. And that is, again, hmm. like when social media, you know, between those ages, social media is, that's when it starts becoming that kid's life, you know? Yeah. Uh, they live online. So we saw that monitoring was like a response to new things happening in a kid's life. Yes, it's kind of like uh, parents are offering their kids training wheels, you know, as they kind of start exploring this new digital world. Yeah. yeah. I just wish that the 36% of kids that don't know their parents have them there. <laughs> yes, I 100% agree. Uh, you know, as someone that works on online privacy, like every single day, as someone that has seen privacy invaded in, you know, particularly nefarious ways, you know, we're talking about other types of things, non-child monitoring. Um the least I think you could do is you could transparently tell someone, hey, we're doing this. Obviously, the relationship between a parent and a child is different than something like, you know, two spouses where we that's where we really start caring about about consent. But you can also care about consent even when your kid is a kid, you know, like it's a, a transparent and a, I think a quite respectful thing to do. Online privacy advocate David Ruiz, thank you so much for talking to me about this and sharing your findings. Any kids out there listening to this, your parents are probably on to you, even if you don't know it. So you have been warned. All right, Joe, what do you think? David opens this interview with the concept of violating privacy that uh, is bad, right? Yeah. We would all think that's bad, but when parents do it, it's fine with monitoring their children. Yeah. Uh, I don't see the the issue there. I don't see a dichotomy. I don't see the, uh, you know, I don't, I, I agree with the fact that it's it's bad when corporations and, and governments monitor people, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's bad when ch- p- adults monitor their children. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I think as a parent, that is your primary responsibility. And my motivation of doing that is making sure, number one, my child is safe mm-hmm. online because there's all kinds of horrible things that go on online targeting children. Right. Uh, number two, I want to make sure they're conducting themselves in a way that doesn't come back to damage them later. Mm. Right. Because we've seen people make tweets that have come back or make statements that have come back and just destroyed careers. Sure. Right. And there has been no restraint on that. People are willing to go back to when you were a high school kid. Dave, I am glad Twitter was not around when I was in high school. <laughs> I know, me too. You know? <laughs> Thank goodness. Because when I was when I was under the age of 18, I did and said some pretty dumb things. Yeah. And I'm glad that those things were very ephemeral and temporal. Right. right. Um, you know, a, a if my kid were to do that now, I mean, the the the, the if if any kid does that now, it's got a it's got a lasting permanence to it. I mean, there is some kind of entry that takes place over time, but I mean, if somebody wants to maliciously save that information, they can do it. Sure, right? Uh, it it just puts makes you vulnerable. Uh, but at the same point in time, no, I don't want. Uh, I'm not happy with the way corporations track our stuff or or governments track our stuff, and. Even if the government says, well, we're, we're doing it for the same reason you do it for your kids. That's where I start having an issue. I don't want you providing me with that kind of safety. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, you know, I track, track my kids with GPS. In fact, my son and I still share locations mutually. And my daughter now uh, has my location, but she doesn't share it with, 
with me. And that's fine because she's an adult, right? Yeah. She's not really my responsibility anymore. But I still share my location with her because, you know, Dave, I'm getting up there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Joe, I hadn't noticed. Right. Yeah. You can't tell from the gray hair. No, no. (laughs) I I ordered a beer at a restaurant last night and the woman said, are you you over 21? I said, my kids are over 21. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't have a problem with sharing location with uh, with my kids or my kids have uh, seeing my kids' location. I will agree with one thing that David and Carol said, and that was transparency. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, we I told my kids, yeah, we're going to be looking at things and we're going to be uh, watching what you do. So you know, don't be surreptitious with your kids. Yeah, that's that's not helpful. Um, you know, there was one email my my daughter. Uh, you know the when she first got an email account within a couple of, uh, a couple of months, she got one of those chain emails that was like scary and, mm. you know, uh, forward this on or something bad will happen to you. And, and mm-hmm. she was like, ah, I better forward it. You know, she's what 11. She yeah. had, she had an email address cause she needed it for school. Um, and we said, what are you doing here? Don't do this. And she's like, but, and she said, I was legitimately scared. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I understand. I understand. Yeah. But, these emails are, and I explained to her what these emails are. These are a social experiment by some knucklehead who just wants to see how far, see how many times he gets this email back from his friends, right? Or from, right. maybe he wants to see if it comes out, comes in from other places. Um, but what you've done is you've you've alienated everybody in your address book. Yeah. <laughs> so don't do that. And she was like, okay, fine. And she learned. She learned the lesson at the age of 11 and it never happened again. Right. Um, we did monitor our social media our kids' social media statements yeah. for exactly the reasons I outlined lined earlier. Uh, I did tell the kids that I was capable of monitoring their web traffic, uh, but I never really had a reason to think I did. If yeah. I if I did have a reason to, I would have would have gone ahead and done it. But yeah, I I, I, I to me, um, I think you got to be careful what you ask for, right. right? Because there is some stuff like I. I don't, if I think my sense is if you get too far in the weeds with your kids, yeah, just. You know, you're no. It's it's not. It doesn't end well for anybody. No, I, I, yeah. It, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, kids are kids, and some they're going to do dumb things. And sometimes, you know, yeah. One thing I've learned as a parent is is how many things that I thought I got away with as a kid that my parents absolutely knew what was going on because. As a parent, I do the same thing all the time where I'm like, I'm just not going to choose this battle. Right. You know, I'm, I'm going to let them think that they got away with it. Yeah. This yeah. is not that important to me. It's, yeah. you know, this is kids. <laughs> this is what kids do. Right. You know, right. Um, so, you know, I, there is one thing, location monitoring of a three-year-old is unnecessary. Um, you know, it's one of those, one of those, if you, if you have to location, know the location of your kid, of your three-year-old, I mean, that's something you should already just know, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, a three-year-old is not an autonomous person yet. Right. Um, I, you know, so I, I agree with him on that. It's that you, your three-year-old should be where you are or at school in the custody of someone, uh, you know, an educator. Yeah. It's hard though. I mean, you, you can, you can see how, because a lot of times what happens is these folks get out there who are trying to sell you something and they're using fear. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you want to protect your kids and as parents, that is like the the most powerful impulse we have. Absolutely. And so if somebody says, Hey, for just, you know, 29.99 a month, you'll always know your toddler will never run away and, you know, get abducted, you right. know, like, and well, okay, I can afford $29.99 a month. So, <laughs> right. 
I should sell that kind of insurance, abduction insurance. <laughs> right, right. Because, you know, the, act, the actual rate of, of child abductions is, is down significantly from when we were kids. Yeah. It happens a lot less frequently. Yeah. But it's still an absolutely terrifying thing to have, right. to have happen. Right. Um, yeah. And that's how they get you, Joe. And that's, that's how, how they, they get, get you. you. They, yeah. they use that fear. <laughs> that's that's right. right. That's right. Fear is a very visceral response that we have. Yep. All right. Well, our thanks to Carol Terrio for uh, bringing us that interview with David Ruiz from Malware Bytes. We do interview. appreciate I, it. I, I appreciate David's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.